Welcome to the Damn Venture Podcast, the podcast where we're stopping the flow of BS in the venture capital industry. I'm Andrew Chen, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Alice Leung from Brick and Mortar Ventures. Alice is a good friend of mine, and prior to being in venture, she actually was working on a cat farm where her cat-shaped ambitions were all embraced to all extents in life. Alice now spends a lot of time investing in the construction <laughs> space and, and is one of the more passionate, more knowledgeable people. I know there, Alice, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I wish I actually worked on a cat farm. I, I'm, I'm sure you do. I, I mean, maybe you can explain for our listeners why, why I make that particular joke at this point in time. <laughs> So I have a cat at home, he's a Bengal, named Newton, and it's funny you mentioned Cat Farm because he was actually lost for five weeks, hanging out in what I thought were the farms of Gilroy, but he was actually in Morgan Hill. We found him, don't worry. I do love my cat very dearly, and he has an Instagram, so I'm going to plug his Instagram, at Sir Newton Cat. I, I also love Newton, and the funniest thing is when I met Alice the first time, she sent me her cat's Instagram. And I realized that her cat was followed by one of my friends from high school who <laughs> does not know Alice, does not know the cat. And Newton has like 1,500 followers, so he's basically a micro-celebrity. But it was just the wildest coincidence. She'd apparently been very worried when Alice and, and Newton were having some disagreements on location, is a polite way to put that. But wild, wild coincidence. I, I also think, so one of the other really interesting things outside of your, your cat passion is that... Uh, you know, you you did not have a standard pathway into venture either. Most of the people who have been on the podcast so far got into venture in a very weird way. I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about your background and what led you into the wonderful world of venture capital. Yeah, so I didn't know anything about venture capital when I first joined Brick and Mortar. I don't know what that says about us, but hopefully that's a good thing. So <laughs> I mean, same here. <laughs> We're all in the same boat. It's okay. So my my interest was actually going to work for a construction tech startup. So that's how I kind of, you know, I was on a search to go look for, you know, the construction tech startup that I can join and have a big impact and reached out to Curtis Rogers, who's one of the now partners here at Brick and Mortar. He's also from industry. So he was at McCarthy when I was at DPR. I met him through. And, and maybe maybe a helpful backtracking there. What exactly is DPR and what did you do there? Yeah. So DPR Construction is a commercial general contractor based out here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So they work mostly on hospitals, big biopharmaceutical labs. They do a bunch of data centers, particularly here in the Bay Area, but they're a global company. They're about, I think, 10,000 people now and heading towards 10 billion in revenue. But of course, this is services revenue, so very different from your from how you're evaluating your typical SaaS startups. And and were you working there in the United States or someplace more interesting? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so we actually, Andrew and I bonded over this too. We have both lived in Singapore for a bit. So I did start my career with DPR here in the Bay Area, but spent two and a half years in Singapore helping open up the Southeast Asia headquarters for DPR. And that was a very interesting experience to just learn about how construction was done outside of the U.S. And particularly kind of the different ways that contracts are set up or different organizational structures just given you know the the type of labor that they had in Singapore a lot of it was foreign imported labor and there were just so many kind of different regulations and legislation around you know 
pushing for technology, technology requirements, as well as how to manage that labor. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point just broadly. I mean, Singapore is such a different place than San Francisco in, in so many ways, but it's just a, a fascinating political ecosystem in, in a way that the, the U.S. just isn't quite always. Anyways, so we brought Alice on today because Alice has infinite numbers of hot takes, uh, most notably around how many cats a normal person should own. But but to, to be quite honest, Alice is very focused on construction and has a lot of industry experience in construction, which, you know, VCs don't always come from industry. In fact, they usually don't. And I thought that was a pretty unique perspective to talk about what that means and what advantages you've seen maybe and disadvantages from, from having that industry background instead of a more traditional venture capital background. Yeah, for sure. So maybe I'll talk a little bit about the way that our team is structured too, because I Absolutely, think that, yeah. that makes, that'll help make a lot more sense. So we're a small five person team and four out of the five of us come from industry. We do have one team member that has more of a finance background. And, and I'm always saying like, I don't know what I would do without him because I don't know how to look at, you know, any of the financial models that we get from startups. Frankly, at the seed and series A stages, they're probably garbage and very speculative, but you know, you still have to at least, you know, see if it is logical, makes sense and whatnot. So our team is set up in a way where because we're focused on the early stage, our managing director, Darren Bechtel, he thought that the biggest value that we can add to a startup at the early stages is providing, you know, our expertise from industry, whether it's through our personal experience, talking through some of the, you know, minute details about workflows or our personal kind of networks that we've built from working in industry to introduce to the startups to provide feedback or even for us personally to get diligence on a lot of these startups. So our setup is pretty unique in that in that sense. And I think that's, you know, lends to some of the, you know, valuable things of having an industry background. But I think some of the things that I know is a personal shortfall is, you know, I don't look at the companies the same way as say a generalist investor would, right? Like sometimes, you know, I, I look at a problem and it may be a problem that I'm very passionate about, but it may not actually be, you know, a huge market or, you know, I may have some preconceived notions about certain things in industry that, you know, really turn my opinion opinions a certain way rather than, you know, someone who has a fresh perspective that can really just, you know, look at, you know, the purest forms of, you know, how can you scale? How big is the market? You know, and, and some of those things. So we always like co-investing and I always like talking to people who are not from industry on the investing side just to get a sense of like, hey, what do you think about this? And, and does it make sense to you? Because I know sometimes having too much of an industry background kind of just, you know, you kind of assume that this is a problem that's easy for everyone to understand. Right. In full transparency, Alice and I are actually co-investors, believe it or not. Yeah. And one of my favorite companies. <laughs> we, we are indeed. Any, anyways, so I, I think that brings up an interesting point and maybe something. Construction itself is not really a hot venture capital space in, in any way. What makes you excited about investing there? I mean, not just from a, a background perspective, but from a venture side as well. Even today, a lot of contractors are still managing multi-million dollar and multi-hundreds of, actually maybe not hundreds of millions, but 
multi-million to the multi-tens of millions of dollars of work on an annual basis using email and spreadsheet. So if you think about, you know, just the risk in that, as well as just, you know, the, I guess, primitive nature of technology adoption, I think that's a huge opportunity. And there's still today a lot of low-hanging fruit, fruit opportunity where you can build a fairly simple workflow tool and you're probably going to get customers. But at the same time, you know, it's hard to scale because it's a very fragmented market. So there's, you know, goods and bads, but I think construction overall, a lot of listeners have probably seen, you know, if you've seen, if you've talked to any construction tech startup, there's the famous McKinsey productivity chart where construction productivity has been stagnant or decreasing over the last decade. And that is the problem that we're solving, right? That's, that's why there's so much opportunity to invest in tech in the space. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I've long been a big supporter of robotics, AI applications to construction and you know, very excited to see that space develop broadly. One of the trends that, that I think that I, I sometimes struggle with, and as people, assuming we actually have any listeners at this point in the season, <laughs> might have noticed that one of the things that we keep coming back to is valuations. What are your thoughts on, as more people come into the space, how do you think that affects the valuations and, and broadly your investment strategy in construction for you guys? We've never been crazy about valuations. We've never been into any of the valuation hypes. I think anytime a startup comes to us and it's, you know, a fairly large multiple over 10x, we really dig into it to really understand, you know, why are they commanding this type of multiple? And particularly in construction, I think something that uh, is different from other types of venture-backed businesses is the sales cycles tend to be a little bit longer and your typical kind of fundraise timeline for construction tech startups, I think actually needs to be longer than your 12 to 18 months runway. I think when you're raising, you should actually raise for longer and you do at the early stages need to be a bit more capital efficient and really, really test it out before you spend a lot of money on sales and marketing. Just because we have seen and we will probably see some implosions of these construction tech startups that have raised a lot of capital but have not been able to get like grow their revenue to actually match those valuation expectations. Right. And and that's an interesting thing too with the hype waves that we see. And, and at least my, my issue is when you see all these big firms who have just too much money to throw in any sector come into these spaces and, and they don't really understand that these businesses aren't always going to return the same profile either. And that means you can't really underwrite it in the same way. I, I see hey, Alice is nodding to that. But I, one thing I'd love your thoughts on is, as somebody who's more of an outsider, how do you learn about the construction space? What steps do you think you need to go through in order to educate yourself? Or, or what do you think would make investors who are more of tourists better investing in the space? First, go to a construction site, and I tell every founder this to any entrepreneur who's interested in building something for construction and doesn't have, you know, a co-founder that's from the space. Going out to site, I think, really opens your eyes to what that environment is, and it it almost helps you appreciate why technology hasn't been built for construction. Because a lot of the times, if you're out on site 
There's no cell service. You can't call anyone. There's no Wi-Fi. There may not be power around. So you need to figure out, you know, everything needs to be offline, battery based. Yeah, there's no Wi-Fi, no power. There's no data connections. And you're really kind of just alone out on site, right? You're alone with all these humans just trying to build stuff. And if you think about that type of environment, it really wasn't until smartphones, tablets, and when kind of computers and software got to a point where they were small enough and mobile enough for us to bring it into the construction sites when you could actually build software for construction. So I think part of it is also a timing thing, why we didn't see all this tech. And and now, you know, now that we have all this technology, that's why it's the best time to invest because you know, cost of software is going down, cost of so- of hardware is going down, sensor costs are going down. So I'm obviously a little biased, but I think no, now's just, the just, time. Just a, a, little, <clears throat> a little bit biased. No, and I, I think that's a good point. I mean, you definitely do see people sometimes building startups who have never been on a construction site. And, you know, you can read a McKinsey report, but that doesn't tell you what an actual pain point is necessarily. And so a lot of these are solutions in search of a problem from time to time. And you'll see those get funded because it's it's a you know funding hype cycle, funding wave or whatever it is at any given time. I certainly agree there. So the other interesting thing about your background is you're currently running Formwork Labs, which I know is one of your favorite things to talk about. <laughs> but, but maybe tell us a little bit about Formwork Labs and, and we can dive into what that experience is like too, especially operating in one of these older industries. Yeah, so I think it's also a timing thing, right, with Formwork Labs. It's like, you know, I talked a little bit about, you know, why now for tech? Why now for an accelerator program? We now have, you know, it's it's kind of three things. So one, the first thing is we started to see interest from industry. So there's more and more, not just large companies, but companies from the construction industry across the supply chain interested in working with startups. We're seeing trends of, some of the larger companies setting up corporate corporate venture capital arms, setting up innovation groups, setting up you know internal pitch contests and whatnot. So there's a pull from industry. We're starting to see more entrepreneurs that are coming from outside of industry, and you know we were trying to figure out a way of basically providing construction 101 to entrepreneurs who have never been on a construction site. And then the third thing is we're starting to see more investors interested in the construction tech space. So it's kind of these three things that came together that we realized that there was this opportunity to build something to connect, you know, these three parts of basically the three parts, investors, industry and startups. And I, and I feel like it's more of a you know, like a do good for construction thing that I'm coming from. It's like, I, I just want to move the industry forward. And I think you need all three of these stakeholders working it's together. Very, to do very so. altruistic. Of you. <laughs> Definitely no financial incentives there either. So, so one thing I'd be curious with that, I mean, do you think that industry is pulling effectively and the strategies that industry is taking actually work to accelerate the adoption of technology? Yes and no. So this is a is a good question because we've spoken with a number of startups that, you know, from their engagements with companies in the space or in in industry, they've just gotten some really bad terms. You know, we've seen some really bad investment, not great investments, but bad terms on the investments. It's a, it's a very, that... very diplomatic way to say <laughs> But but it's really, you know, as an investor, when we look at 
you know, the, the prior agreements, safes, convertible notes, whatever the agreement is, some of those actually are huge red flags. And, and we don't touch those companies because of exclusivity agreements or because of right of first refusal. Like there's so many things that I think the industry side, because construction is all about, you know, contracts and negotiating and always getting the best deal. I think some of those agreements, because the the industry company is so much bigger, it sways in their favor, but it really sets the startup up for failure when you're thinking about the long-term kind of fundraising journey and, and what they're going to have to go through. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something we've been thinking about a lot at Builders too, is what that journey looks like for companies in the construction space. And one thing I'd, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, it's it's a space that, quite honestly, hasn't had that many large successes yet. There have been a few, but when you think about tech startups in construction, it still is quite nascent in a lot of the actual returns profile. How do you see that developing, and what do you guys do at Brick and Mortar to underwrite those returns? For us in the seed and series a stages i think we're you know we we don't necessarily need unicorn exits for you know to to make the multiples work for our fund and frankly when i look at our first fund i think we might only have one donut of a startup which is actually very weird so i think the way that it's shaping out is for construction tech at least right now we're seeing a lot more you know, good exit multiples, not like, you know, in the 100x range, right? More in the, you know, three plus, maybe three to 20, 30. I mean, PlanGrid was a unique one. Absolutely. I think we're seeing lower exit multiples because most of them are through acquisition. But a lot of the construction tech startups are finding soft landings. So there are, they're not necessarily as big of a I guess there aren't as many that go to zero. So Right, because if you're solving a problem, someone's going to want to buy it. Exactly. To use the software. And exactly. It's it's we were even talking about a startup that that we were looking at, both of us had seen that that ended up doing that where in a normal venture round it would have gone to zero and then end up with an acquisition. So Alice, you obviously love the construction space. You love a lot of things about it. What's the thing that you hate most about the day to day of working in construction? I think it's, I mean, thinking back during my time in construction, it's probably just the number of emails that you get. But I guess maybe now that's also the same. But it's more emails that are CYA, which is actually a very popular three-letter acronym in construction that stands for cover your ass. I guess you're nodding your head, so maybe it's not just construction, but... No, I was <laughs> nodding my head as you were explaining that because I had no idea what that stood oh. for. <laughs> So CYA, it's a, I, I guess for any VC that's, you know, interested in construction tech, you should know this term, CYA, cover your ass. So in construction, you get all these emails that are just CYA emails, right? Just because everyone's trying to cover their risk and the way that you do it in construction is to notify people about things, right? So any type of change, anything new, any new document, any documentation of anything, it all goes through email, and it's just like blasted out to everyone, even if it's, you know, unrelated to your scope of work that you're managing. So then you just end up with so many emails that you're like 
filtering out and trying to figure out, you know, what's relevant, what's not relevant. But that's the nature of the industry, right? And it's across the entire supply chain where, you know, when when the owner makes a change, you literally have to send that information all the way down the supply chain. And if you look at the inefficiencies and, and just the, you know, time suck along that entire supply chain, just through to poor filtering of information, that's a huge waste. And so there's a lot of wasted time just by additional emails. I, I wonder if that's reminiscent of any other industry. Probably we know. is. All right. I need a second. I, I don't actually know where I was going to take the, the conversation from there. I promise I have notes. I don't, I don't actually have notes. Okay. Here we go. So. I've obviously spent a fair bit of time in the space. Most of what I've done is is more on the robotics side. I, I mean, we're both close with the guys at Rugged. And then we recently did a check in a company called PaintJet doing outdoor painting. What technologies in the construction space are you most excited about? What do you think is underhyped? And on the flip side of that, what do you think people are spending too much time investing in that maybe they should roll back from a little bit? Too much time, probably two spaces, general project management tools and BIM, BIM-related tools. Underhyped, I think, Let, is... Let's, let's dig into that first before we get to the underhyped. <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe a, something important, BIM, we should right? probably define what BIM <laughs> sorry, is, too. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, like I said, construction full of so many three-letter acronyms. So BIM is building information modeling. And we can probably talk for hours about this, but just in the most basic sense, it's a 3D model of what you're building with some associated information. And there's different levels of BIM in terms of how detailed information you want to put in the models, but just for you know general purpose, just talk, just think of it like a 3D representation of what you're building. Right. And why do you think VCs and startup founders are so excited about BIM? Because it's a... I, it's it's a term that's been paraded around industry for a really long time, and it's been advertised as this: if you adopt BIM, you will save money and you will be more productive. But in reality, it's actually a technology that's really, really hard. Actually, I take that back. There's a technology and a process part of BIM, right? The technology could be Revit, Autodesk's Revit. But the process is that, hey, you actually need to train everyone on how to model this. And hey, if you're adopting BIM, you should actually incorporate the coordination of BIM in your construction schedule. And like BIM in its purest form actually touches every single part of operations on a construction site. And there's so many issues on site where people are just not trained properly or they don't understand it. And BIM is purely just adopted by creating a 3D model that nobody uses. So it's actually, in some sense, a waste of money if the rest of the process doesn't actually adopt the, I guess, the idea of the of what BIM is and the value that you get out of it. Right. It's the multiple stakeholders problem. That as well. You have to figure out who exactly is, well, and I guess one of the things that I always find with a, a lot of these technologies in construction, also in mining, natural resources, you have to sell something that people are going to pay for and you have to figure out who's going to pay for it. And those oftentimes have to align with 
somebody who has pressure to pay for something. Yeah, yeah. And here's and here's the issue is for BIM, usually who needs to spend more time and money on BIM is the design team. And the people who get the value out of it is the construction team. So when you have contracts where, you know, why would I, as the designer, spend more time and more money on this technology and process when who gets all the benefit is actually the contractor who's fighting me on a day-to-day basis? You know, this is just generalizing the construction industry, but adversary relationships and, you know, who puts in the effort isn't who's actually getting the value out of BIM. Right. On the underutilized side, what's what's something that you think more VCs should be investing in or paying attention to that maybe from your career at DPR or something like that has been completely unsolved so far? Completely unsolved. Mostly unsolved. Most, I mean, mostly unsolved is still just data transfer and integrations, but that's a big problem. And I think that's probably not just construction industry that has that issue. Like on, on a lot of construction projects, legacy tech is still being used and people are trying to get information out of that legacy tech into this other software and on some construction projects you're using like 20 different tools just because there's so many different point solutions out there but you're trying to pull data from various tools to to you know analyze risk or to understand progress or whatever it is so that's still a big problem and we still haven't fully figured out how to solve that because, you know, looking at the integration op- options out there today, there's a but they are all still services-based businesses. Closer to maybe not being that, but, you know, we're not sure. Alice was naming names of companies. Her firm has requested that we do not name names of companies during this particular podcast episode as such. That particular section will be rearranged and muddled a little bit, but if you know, you know. That's 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 what we're going for. So so anyways, we've been talking a lot. We've been getting fairly technical on the construction side. I think you know, there's there's some other things that are actually really interesting about your background and sort of why you ended up in venture that that's the broad idea of this this podcast honestly it's to explore the personalities of people who are not at the partner level in venture the people that you won't always hear from how do you view your career in venture you know you said you initially wanted to work at a construction startup have you thought about founding your own startup where do you see that taking you good question so before i took Before I took the job at Brick and Mortar, I was actually thinking through a couple of different options. So the three main ones were join a construction tech startup, start a construction tech startup, or go to business school. Because I thought that business school was a really great way to have, you know, more of a career pivot. And I ended up having the conversation with Darren and Darren was like, hey, you should just come work for us because you can learn about, you know, the venture side and also just have the opportunity to work with all these different startups. And I saw that it was a great opportunity because when I was looking for the construction tech startup to join, I created a list of the problems that I wanted to solve in the construction industry. And none of the startups were solving those problems. So I was like, okay, I can take this job and venture to work with these startups, learn about the startup landscape. And frankly, I saw it as an opportunity for me to figure out if I can 
you know, meet that startup that I wanted to go join. I think I'm very much an operator and I miss, I actually miss operations a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, Darren gave me the opportunity to run Formwork Labs because it was kind of like a little startup within brick and mortar ventures. Yeah, and, and honestly, a lot of people discount how much VCs, accelerators are like a startup from time to time. Like, you know, sure, it seems pretty glamorous, but realistically, our budgets are not that high. And a lot of VCs, especially your smaller funds, have to be pretty scrappy themselves and, and resemble founders in a lot of ways. But you've, you've been in venture for a few years now. What don't you like about working in the venture space outside of the lack of operating at times? What other things have bugged you about how we operate as an industry? One thing that bugs me the most is just some of the lack of diligence that goes into investments. I know at our firm, we spent we spend a lot of time looking at these companies and you know, and maybe part of it is we spend too much time and we miss out on deals just because we want to make sure we cross the T's and dot the I's. So is that is that really spending too much time, though, if you're missing out on a deal because somebody wants to shoot from the hip? I mean, no, I mean, and, and I think that's where time will tell. Right. We've only been on this journey for, I don't know, four or five years. And there there are instances where we've quote unquote, missed out on a deal because, you know, we wanted to make sure that we got all the feedback that we could get. And some of those startups are not doing as well as, you know, the the speed at which, you know, term sheets were thrown at them. So it's almost a, you know, blessing in disguise, right? That you quote unquote, missed out, but in fact, it was actually a bad deal. So I think part of it is, you know, the the lack of diligence and maybe just some of the hype around some of these deals that I'm just like, oh my God, I, I don't understand because when I think about it from an end user perspective, I'm like, there's no way in hell, you know, some of these construction companies are gonna adopt this tech, but you know, millions of dollars are being raised and and it blows my mind. Yeah, I, I've i loved seeing that in kind of the mining space as well, where you look at some companies and you're like, oh, that's it's going to be a stretch to sell to a mine operator. But but I think that's reflective of a broader trend of, of this tourism. And we were talking about that a little bit earlier. But oftentimes what you see is VCs like reading Twitter threads a lot and don't always love doing their own research on the ground. And when you're relying on secondary information instead of primary research, you're always going to miss something and or that's how you end up in a situation like FTX not that we've ever <laughs> talked about that so in terms of the personal aspect how has it been adjusting from a industry job to something like venture capital that's extraordinarily network driven and, and network driven in a very different way I think the luckily on the networking side before I joined brick and mortar I was pretty involved with a lot of extracurriculars and yeah well, just a quick note here alice is mildly famous in the construction industry i am not so she'll go to conferences <laughs> and everyone's like oh my god it's alice so excited to see her and she she's very modest about this but it's true i've seen it happen and and so she is well networked in construction too yeah, and I I mean, that goes back to the support of the team. And DPR was a great company where they encourage, you know, people who like technology to go out there and share their ideas within the company and even outside of the company. But 
the net the networking side was definitely it was different right because you were more kind of sharing you know best practices lessons learned and stuff like that now on the networking side as a vc going to construction industry events i get to catch up with a lot of my old friends but at the same time you know i get a lot of really good gossip and diligence on all of the lots of good gossip yeah startups that they're working with (laughs) yeah and alice is kind of the the fountain of construction gossip it's it's i always know and i'm sure alice has figured this out by now but whenever i need like the tea on a startup you just shoot shoot the little text over (laughs) send a cat meme with it and you're set (laughs) only if you send a cat only if i send a cat meme yeah Although Alice does ignore the TikToks that I send to her because she's a good millennial who doesn't spend that much time on TikTok. Yeah. Uh, you got to send me the Instagram. Instagram reels. Uh. <laughs> so we talked about network star investing. What surprised you most about working in venture capital? I think what surprised me the most is probably just the the sheer number of companies out there. I think maybe I just had low expectations because I was coming from industry and I didn't see that many startups. But, you know, now on the venture side, like there's so many people doing the same thing. And I guess I guess what was surprising was, you know, if, if I'm from industry, I would have thought, you know, if there's like three people doing the same thing, they should come together and combine forces. But, you know, what I'm seeing is that, you know, everyone has their baby and everyone thinks their baby is the best baby and nobody wants to come together with another founder to solve the same thing. So I'm actually a little disappointed by that. But at the same time, I'm like, well, we actually do need competition to make sure that we get the best products out there. Right. And it is is a little bit of a a two-edged sword there where some of these spaces get really overcrowded. I mean, what, there are at least six or seven startups doing layout right now in some automated way. Yeah. And yeah. It, and I can name all of yeah, them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I can too. And but we have our favorite we, we ones. Have, we have our favorite ones. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not that we would ever pick favorites. I haven't talked to most of them, but, uh, you know, Derek gave me a t-shirt. I, I can't help it. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think we can mention that Yeah. Sh- shameless got, plug, Rugged yeah, Robotics yeah. down in Houston. <laughs> Big fan. They have a swerve drive. That's my favorite type of drivetrain on a robot. And we can tell you all the reasons why their tech is better. Yeah, we, we can, but we won't at risk of... An, you know, doxing ourselves on the internet. So kind of last question before we wrap up here. Venture capital also faces a lot of other issues around diversity, diversity of thought. Broadly speaking, I mean, just general problems of diligence, nepotism, etc. What do you think is the most pressing issue facing venture? And what do you think our generation of investors needs to fix? I think the the biggest problem is probably just, you know, and I think this, sorry, start over. I think one of the biggest problems with venture is that a lot of people in venture don't have industry experience. And I always wonder, and, and frankly, I it took me a really long time to accept the fact that I am an investor and that I work for a VC because... I didn't have any investing experience and I actually like still don't really know what that is. But, you know, for me to give advice to startups on things that I don't have any background in, I I struggle with that. Right. So at the beginning of my career, I didn't know anything about go to market strategies. I didn't know anything about, you know, how to build a product. 
I really only had construction experience and, and I thought that's how I could add value to these startups. But anything else, I'm like, I have zero experience doing that. Like you can talk about hiring and, you know, reviewing resumes. And I was like, I've, I've never hired anyone before. So I'm actually not, you know, the, I can't advise you on that. So I think just, you know, in the VC space, there's a lot of really young, excited people that come into it. And frankly, there's, definitely people who learn really, really fast. And I commend them on that. And they are great investors and, and they fit kind of part of the fund. Right. And I think that's why you need diversity of thought within a fund is you don't necessarily need to have, you know, a full team of people with any type of experience, right? Whether it's operations experience, industry experience, whatever experience, you still need the, you know, young people to kind of you know, think about new ways of doing things, new processes and kind of challenge the way that things are happening. But at the same time, it's like we can't have only people that, you know, are kind of, you know, peer investing or peer whatever. Right. You need that diversity of a team. And it would be great to see a lot more people from industry coming into VC. And maybe that's why we wouldn't have like Theranos or Ubiome or maybe yeah. we can't name these, but we, some we, of these. I will, I will fully call out any. And actually, in the next question, you're gonna, just, just wait, Alice, just wait. But I'll also say that it's not just industry experience. It's people who come from technical backgrounds and who understand the technology. For me, right, like I don't claim to have industry expertise in mining natural resources, but having a degree in geophysics in diligencing a mining company is very different than having a degree in business and trying to do the same thing because you understand the culture of what it means to be a geophysicist or a rock jock, something like that. <laughs> you understand, you know, how rocks actually work and you understand what's scientifically feasible and what isn't. And a lot of times in venture, especially in the modern world, those things get blurred and you can't really tell You'll see a bunch of people who have these great stories on paper, these brilliant revenue projections. Great story means nothing if the technology is not there to back it up. Yeah. But there are some companies where, you know, if it's a consumer company or, you know, social media company, like you definitely don't need a tech background uh, or industry experience. Yeah. So I think we're kind of more talking about, you know, in certain yeah, spaces, spaces we invest in, yeah. which is these older, slower moving industries, places that are highly technical. To be honest, at times, I, I really wish I had a knack for consumer investing. Like I would love nothing more to spend every day doing like product tasting for CPG food companies. <laughs> that's that's the dream, honestly, but I'm just terrible at it. And I, I own up to that. Like Do you my, have bad taste buds? I Well, it's more that like, I like anything. Like, I'm like, wow. I mean, I, I have not had a plant-based meat company that I don't like. I know for a fact all of them are not going to succeed on the market, but I love every single one that I try. And I'm, so you need higher expectations. I That's need what higher, you need. <laughs> Alice is basically saying I need higher standards. She's not wrong. It's 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 across the board, big problem for me. So anyways, as, as we wrap up, the... We have a set of questions that we try to ask every person who comes on. We're not really a set of questions, but, you know, similar ideas, similar things like that. The first one is, and you know how I said we'd get to it, what company, public or private, would you want to see fail? <laughs> Alice has this, this deer in the headlights look. I, I'm, I'm going to give her a second. We'll, we'll cut this together. You should have gave me these before. We work. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think you make the argument that WeWork's already failed. Tell me, tell me a bit more about what your beef is with WeWork. <laughs> they're not a tech company. I mean, this was 
my experience working in construction, having looked at the drawings of the office spaces that they were going to build, thinking that I would see a lot of cutting edge tech, because that's what they claim, right? WeWork was claiming that they were collecting all this data and had all this, you know, great BMS and all this stuff, right? But then I actually looked at a project that we were bidding on and none of it was tech forward. It was just a normal office building. And it was like the rudest awakening of they're not doing anything that they're claiming. And yeah, this is not a technology company. And I also say there is a WeWork across the street from us. We're at 601 California. There's one at 600 California. It does not look like a tech company. There's no tech enabled. It's just a bunch of office spaces. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> point blank. No matter how you slice it. All right. So we work. Next, next question, kind of in this not quite the similar vein. If you could give a piece of advice to your earlier self, what would that be? Take some more coding classes and learn some more software engineering. <laughs> you know, it's never too late to learn software engineering. Alex. It isn't, but I do feel a little too old for that. <laughs> There is there is no such thing as too old for software engineering. I think there's just the view that you're too old for software engineering, and that's the yeah. It's a mindset. One. It's a mindset. Okay, and then last one being so you've been in venture capital for more years than I have at this point. By I actually don't know how many years you've been in venture. three and a half. Three and a half. So a year more than I have. If you could have changed anything about your venture capital career so far, what would that be? I don't know, because I feel like I didn't know anything about VC when I first joined, and I have enjoyed every aspect of it so far. Just, I mean, I have a great team. I have a great setup. I mean, I've, you know, even when I first joined, I was the youngest person, an associate. My team members actually listened to me, even though I knew nothing about venture. So I feel like, you know... I've just been very lucky. Yeah, makes sense. And I mean, if anybody's listening to this podcast, Alice is the sort of person that I'd strongly recommend you listen to unless she's trying to get you to purchase another cat, in which case the answer is probably no. That That's a, that's about all I have. Alice, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today. It's been great talking to you. And, and I mean, I'll see you on Sunday at the Christmas market. Thanks for having me.